to really understand technology, you have to live by it. And to talk about business, you must have experienced it first. In this show, we do both. But we also get backstage and enjoy the crack with other entrepreneurs with whom we compare experiences and learn about their secret sauces. Welcome to the Tech Post with me, Richard O'Donnell, and my co-host, Tony Frawley. The business topic of this month's podcast is a reprise of Time Kills a Deal. We chat about the role of tech companies as banks. We review the banking app Revolut and discuss Symphonisk, a collaboration between IKEA and Sonus. Well, for this, uh, our fourth podcast, it's mad to think that we're that far. Yeah, it really, really, really is. Time flies when you're having, having fun. It's it probably very true, isn't it? Does. it? Well, we, we spoke about it briefly in the last interview with uh, Carl Widger, but we'd like to, I think, talk in more detail uh, today about Libra, which is the Facebook cryptocurrency, and cryptocurrencies in general versus, versus uh, traditional currencies. We'll also talk about banks, or the new banks as I call them, which would be, surprisingly enough, tech companies, including the likes of Google, Apple, and indeed I think the telecom companies are also becoming uh, banks, as are the car companies, which is kind of intriguing. So that's what we're going to talk about. So firstly, Libra. So Libra is Facebook's answer to cryptocurrencies as launched by uh, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg maybe two, three months ago now. Reg, you you and I both read the Manifesto, manifesto, which read quite well. Um, What really impressed me was the partners that he managed to get on board, including the likes of PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, all the big ones, Stripe. Mm, Spotify, Uber, all looking at becoming partners as well. Yeah, and yet uh, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, uh, each one of those partners dropped out and said, we're no longer in- interested. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I wonder why that was. Now, we touched on it before. My theory on why that was is that I think it's the individual and it's a trust issue. Mm. I think that the guy who runs the company, Zuckerberg, it's, this isn't new. You can read it on Google any day you like, is seen as maybe an untrustworthy individual. He's seen as amoral. I spoke to you before about that particular um, personality type. And I think that the other companies looked at this and said, well, this seems to be a Mark Zuckerberg currency, even though he is uh, proposing it as a worldwide uh, new answer to the likes of Bitcoin. Mm. And it started off as um, Project Libra, from, from my reading of it, and just in a little bit of research in it. And, um, and it's become known as Facebook's cryptocurrency, their, their digital currency. And uh, Zuckerberg, he's got a really hard time recently. He's been really pushed on this because it has to come back to trust at the end of the day. Yeah. Fundamentally, uh, people don't trust Facebook at the moment. Why, in the name of God, would they consider trusting with their money? Yeah. And incidentally, you know, Facebook were already in the, the digital currency game a number of years ago with their credits. I, don't, I never used them. Did you use them? No, I never no, did. It was there, though. You could, yeah. you could use it. Um, and it's a big play from Facebook. They understand that this is where the game is at. Um, Zuckerberg knows that at the end of the day, people should be able to send money to each other very, very easily, um, you know, without any convoluted processes that we've been used to. Sure. So, yeah, it, it's, um, it started off. It looked great when it was first uh, hit the press, but now it's, um, it's, it's starting to falter a little bit. Yeah, and I, I think it's down to, would you give your money to this guy? And I think the answer is no. Um, and uh, so that's it. However, interestingly, you'll give your money to Google and you'll give your money to Vodafone, mm. and you'll give your money perhaps to BMW. 
So this goes back to what we started by saying, if you look at Google Pay, for example, or Apple Pay, well, what happens in that transaction? You tap your phone, the transaction goes uh, through Google or through Apple and essentially into their bank account. Uh, likewise, if you're using the likes of a Vodafone or a Three or whoever the carrier is, they are once again handling that transaction. Um, and as I said, the car companies is interesting. If you ever go to a car show, you see yeah. the, the bank of BMW yeah. and the bank of Volkswagen. And it's, that's a really interesting point. I remember the first time that that occurred for me and, you know, buying a car a few years ago and the guy I was dealing with, he said, we can finance this through our own bank. I looked at him you know, I see 10 heads on. Well, what do you mean your own bank? Oh, yeah, at the time it was Volkswagen Bank. Yeah. Sure, we, we have our own bank now. But, you know, it, I didn't flinch because I, I trusted the brand. I, I trusted uh, what Volkswagen uh, stood for. I wasn't concerned about, you know, dealing with them from a finance point of view. Didn't, it was no issue to me. Well, that's so interesting. That trust, trust. that trust word again, isn't it? Yeah, it's surely down to that. Well, you know, after the recession we've just come through, um, again, it's, it's, it's not a big surprise that... I think the vast majority of people don't trust banks anymore. Mm. And interestingly, now, even if you don't realize it, you have an alternative. I mean, we again, to say you, the alternative is the likes of Google, who actually I personally trust. If you know, I'm a big Google fan. Google yeah. everything, yeah. be it their software, be it their hardware. Likewise, Apple, biggest company in the world, do you trust them? I think the answer is yes. But it ta- it, it, you trust them today, but it only takes one bad bad move out of them when there's a data breach or something like that and then you start to doubt them and that's what that's what happens and you know facebook is in that in that funny space at the moment and they need to consider how they go about launching this is it the correct move to launch it under brand facebook should they take it away from that and and uh, you know align it under a different brand or something like that i don't know it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out but from where they are right now, I can't see how they're going to successfully launch this. Maybe they have specific countries around, around the world who, who are crying out for something like this, who don't have access to traditional banks and might use this as well, their platform. In the third world, there has been a revolution uh, over the past few years for people uh, on their phones in particular. I saw a statistic lately where is it 2 billion people, which would be kind of a third of the world, don't have a bank account. Yeah, that's incredible. And this has been solved by, again, the telecom companies. Yeah, mo- mobile phone. Yeah, mobile that's phone. Right, yeah. So yeah. you can transfer or you can do your banking on your phone between people, which is a new departure, actually, if you think about it. You know, if you take a Visa card, for example, that's a business to business. Sorry, it's, it's a B2C. So it's a consumer to business uh, facility. But you have to go through Visa in order to do the transaction. So if I owed you money, for example, I owe you 50 quid after the weekend. We had a few pints, very good. I owe you 50 quid. I can't pay you directly at the moment through the typical bank that we've dealt with for years. I can't use Visa and I can't use uh, MasterCard, which are the two biggies in the market. However, and this brings us to our next point, uh, and to the next section here, which is what we call the two to the point reviews. Hard yeah, to say, yeah, it, it actually is. But you, 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 you kind of led into that a second ago when you mentioned the word revolution. Yeah, well, I, I, I kind of said it purposely. Did you? I oh, did. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, a, there's, there's, here, there's, there's an inner there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, before we talk about revolution, which is uh, this, uh, this this month's app of the month. Um, Just to go back just a little bit, there's an interesting thing going on in the tech world um, called disruptive technologies. And it's uh, when I say new, I suppose it is going back the last five years or so. Now, I think it's been overused. Every 
tech idea that comes out is a disruptor. Yeah. Is a disruptor. And not just tech, I see it's it's starting to creep into other businesses. So whoever you're talking to thinks that their new idea is a disruptive uh, idea or technology. And I don't think that's the case. However, we can point to the ones that we'd all know quite easily, which is the likes of Uber. So what did Uber do? Uber took the taxi business all over the world, deregulated it, made it an app on your phone, made it easy to pay, and we know what they do. And of course, they made it cheaper, which is more to the point. They're typically, I think, from using them, they're somewhere between 30 and 40% cheaper all over the world. You so see, why not use them? You see, it's interesting when you talk about dis- disruption and disruptor. Really, what Uber did was they just created a new business model, a different way of thinking to the traditional players in that space. They understood that the, you know who their target market was, and they had a very unique value proposition, and that's what they went and did. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bracket that myself personally as disruptive yeah. technology. They use technology to launch a new business model for sure, and you know, fair play to them. And they've had their challenges along the way as well, and people in adopting and embracing them, and, and their own issues around around trust that they're still, uh, I suppose, uh, battling. Certainly in London this week, we heard that news from from Uber. So yeah, I would agree with you. It's a term that's very overly used in the tech space. It's not yeah. just the tech space, actually. In other markets, too. Mm. You'll see disruptors in whatever space, whatever sector that is. Definitely. And the other one that comes to mind, of course, is Airbnb. Now, is that disruptive? I don't think so. I mean, what, what have they done? They've common taken, sense. <laughs> well, common sense. It, it's a niche. It used to be called a niche. You know, that's essentially what it is. So what did they do? They took, you know, excess uh, vacancies within the accommodation market, let's call it. So you have a... You know, you have an apartment in town and uh, half the time it's not occupied. So why not rent out the rooms to people who want to use it? Yeah. Um, obvious when you think about it. Uh, disruptive? I don't think so. Mm. I actually do think, though, that Uber was disruptive because it took a traditional uh, industry that's been there forever, the whole taxi industry, and regardless of geography, um, uh, you know, regardless of where in the world or what town you're in, you can use a single app on your phone that will allow you to essentially have your own um, uh, chauffeur service uh, whenever you like. Mm-hmm. So I think that that does count. That's fair enough. That's but fair enough. Let's bring it back to Revolut, which yeah. is the app of the month. Let's talk a little bit about what Revolut is. And hopefully a lot of our listeners have heard of Revolut. Um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about why you've chosen that as uh, your app of the month. Well, the official um, description of Revolut is banks will charge you when you spend or transfer money abroad. We're not about hidden fees or rubbish exchange rates, and that's why 8 million plus people already use Revolut. So what's Revolut? Again, if you go back to this disruptive technology, um, I think that this has been uh, agonizingly slow to come to the market or, or the likes of this. And there's others out there. N26 is another one. I heard another one on the radio this morning, which I can't pronounce, from Argentina which we'll come back to in a minute. <laughs> so essentially, what are they? Well, these guys are small outfits with financial and banking knowledge who come together to give you an app on your phone, which basically simplifies the the more complicated um, mainstream, let's call them apps or pieces of software that the, the, the established banks uh, would have out there. So take Bank of Ireland, for example. Um, I think Bank of Ireland uh, are probably in light years behind uh, other uh, apps. For example, I have a Bank of Ireland account. It is the most complicated, difficult thing to make a transfer. It is overly secure. 
uh, or perhaps it's just the type of security they're using. Um, difficult to use um, and uh, probably behind the times as far as the slickness of an app on your phone is concerned. So back to Revolut. Um, so what, what does it do? Well, they talk about budgeting, for example. They talk about exchanging and allowing, allowing you to exchange your money for a cryptocurrency, which harks back to what we said a moment, a moment ago at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, travel and ease of interbank exchange rates and sending of money easily. So those are their USPs. Sure, but I, I think just from the very, very outset, in the, in the simplest way of explaining this as well, it's an app, isn't it? It's a, it, you can go onto your phone today, you can download the Revolut app, and you can open a Revolut account, and you can start banking with that today. And you use it. it there's no you know, application forms or any of that kind of crack. You can do it straight away. Yeah. Um, you can connect it to your current bank account that you might be using, and you can top up your account straight away. Yeah. So it's simple to set up. Yeah. Um, and it's particularly, I think a lot of the drivers for using it, I've seen from some of my mates, have been when you're going abroad. Some say, oh, you should be using Revolut. You're going over to London for the weekend, use it because you can exchange your money from your Euro um, account in Revolut to your Sterling account um, at very affordable um, uh, exchange rates. Well, actually, they're interbank rates. Interbank rates, sorry, interbank they're rates. They're not retail yeah. rates yeah. like your regular high street bank would charge you. And that seems to be exactly what you were talking about a minute ago, the, the key value product, the key... Um, trigger for people to first kick off using Revolut. So you think it's the reason I get one is because I'm going traveling somewhere where I'm not using the euro. It's how it began really in, in terms of me seeing the Revolut revolution. Uh, it was people who travel a lot for work. Some of my buddies who do a lot of travel now around the world were using Revolut a long time before me because of the ease of transferring currency uh, and not being penalized heavily with exchange rates. And, and they, were, they were, you know, talking about it a lot. And when I then was taking a trip to London, I decided to use it. And I haven't looked back since. So yeah. it's simple to use. So that's, you know, it's an app, basically. Okay. Well, let's look at some user feedback. And, and this month is from my, my son, Christian, who has a Revolut account for a long time. And uh, so I said to Christian, in, uh, in preparation for this podcast, why do you use it and why do you have it? And it'll be interesting to, to see what he said. And here are the bullets. He said, Dad, it's easy to operate. It's got great graphics and a superb uh, app, especially for a bank, exclamation mark. I can transfer or receive money instantly to whomever I want with just their mobile number. The saving vaults that I can add money to each month, so it's an automatic saving uh, system, as you know. The spare change feature, which rounds up payments you make on the card and adds them to a savings account. I love that idea. Mm. So if you're about to spend uh, €4.95, you can spend 5 take that five cent excess and stick it into account. And as my mother used to say, every mickle makes a muckle. So, <laughs> so soon that adds up. Yeah. Um, then the other thing that he really likes, and, and I do too, I have to say, is no ATM charges mm. no matter where you are. Mm. And interestingly, the, um, the last thing that he said was that no ATM charges. So you might have thought, well, I'll do this because I'm saving money. But actually, there's one, two, three, four, five, six different points before he got to the point about saving money. What's very interesting as well about Christian's um, feedback is the lack of loyalty to the traditional mainstream banks. It doesn't exist. You know, it just doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. It's whoever can give him um, what he's looking for is who he's going to work with. Now, you know, that doesn't mean he might leave Revolut next month and decide to go to one of the other players. 
and and that, I think when it comes to brand loyalty in this space, um, it's been thrown wide open because yeah. these um, they all would fall under the fintech um, bracket. Mm. Market space, I suppose. It's, it's fintech, isn't it? Financial technology, yeah. which which never existed a few years ago, really. Um, or did it? Uh, not not to the consumer, let's say. Not to say. the consumer, fair point. Um, but, uh, I mean, you know, my background for years was in the software, software side of life. Uh, I spent eight, nine years working yeah. in the banking sector in the UK. Sure. All business to business, completely. Mm. Indeed, the consumer really was somebody who walked into the bank and went up to the window and uh, you handed in a piece of paper called a cheque, uh, all that stuff. This this dispenses with all of that. But you made a very good point in the prep for this. You said to me, how come the mainstream banks haven't done this before? And I think the answer is twofold. First is they didn't think they had to. Um, and secondly, and I think this applies to any business, not just the banking business, I think big wheels always move slowly. I mentioned how bad I think that the Bank of Ireland transfer um, uh, system is or transferred app. It's not even an app, it's a piece of software. Uh, how, how bad it is and, and how badly it operates. And I think it was because it's a cobbled together system that they thought, well, geez, we're getting left behind here, we better do this. And even though I keep beating up Bank of Ireland, the rest are the same. KBC are a little bit different in that they have niched themselves as the as hubs uh, to try and get that techie feel to what they do, although their apps, I think, are still not good enough yet. Um, so if a big wheel moves slowly, of course. a small wheel moves quickly. Absolutely. Well, a small small wheel has the agility as well. And, you know, one of the things I hear from a lot of, uh, lot of uh, clients that I work with would be how challenging it is for them to communicate with their regular banks. It's not good enough anymore for a business owner to have to spend 25 minutes on hold waiting to speak to their bank about an issue that needs to be resolved urgently. Yeah. This is where the, the, the guys Revolut who aren't huge organizations right now, uh, you can chat to very quickly. Yeah. I know they're not in the business, well they are in the business space but that's I think kind of a new venture really. Yeah. Um, but you can talk to them and chat very, very quickly. Yeah. And, well, and the, the, the tough challenge of course for them is as they grow, they, they say that they have 8 million plus um, subscribers at the moment. As they grow and the bigger they get, uh, you would hate to think that they become like a traditional sure. bank, which is this slow behemoth of a of an organisation. Well, what, what, what I would love to see in the traditional banking sector, I've had family members work. You know, my uncle was very senior guy in AIB in the UK for years, and he got out at the right time. He felt because he thought banking um, really needed to change radically. We need a young, dynamic CEO that comes into one of our traditional mainstream banks and absolutely completely alters its course yeah. over the next decade because the market is shifting from underneath their feet at the moment there's yeah. a movement happening look at christian's age yeah he doesn't have any loyalty to them and he is going to go with who um aligns with the way he likes to think and, and what he buys into and what he believes in and he's not going to phone somebody and wait 25 minutes on the phone he doesn't even phone his friends yeah <laughs> sorry christian yeah you know he's got the time for that so it's time to wake up and it's like any industry you know we talked about disruption earlier um complacency is a terrible thing you're at the top of the tree you think well we've got all the power here and that's not forever yeah and that can be taken from under your feet very quickly we saw that happen with nokia nokia thought they had the market sewn up all over the world you know so i think yeah, I, what we're talking about here is fascinating to me that what's actually happening um you know it's only until you start using revolut that you realize oh my god this is this is fantastic yeah i was away with, with my buddies last weekend and uh 
they're all using Revolut and we were able to ping money to each other left, right and centre. Yeah. Just makes it so easy. Yeah. So yeah, it absolutely deserves well, the, other, uh, the the app of the month title for this month. Definitely. The other Great interesting choice. thing just to summarize on this is though uh, is the and of course we have a bias here is how all consuming technology is these days and it is in every aspect of life. And uh, the banking sector which is an old traditional sector has now once again perhaps been um, uh, disrupted by the likes of Revolut and there are tons more. Okay, very good. Let's move on to the gadget of the month. You're going to love this because you didn't know it was coming up. <laughs> well, the first thing I'm going to say is I can't pronounce it. <laughs> so I'll let you do that. Uh, I think it's Symphonisk. Now, what's Symphonisk? You know, we talked about um, we talked about disruptive technologies, but of course, as, as you know, being a branding man, there is a lot of um, collaboration uh collaborations going on these days between different people. So you see Adidas, for example, will bring out a fancy shoe that Jay-Z or somebody yeah. uh, co-produces in some form. They lend their names, they lend their brands. Dr. Dre shoe. and Beats. Oh, yeah, it's, it can, work really, well. it can yeah. work really well. So this is a collaboration. So what is it? It's a collaboration between IKEA and Sonus. And now you're a big Sonus fan, and Absolutely, so am I. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and here again is the official... Uh, so uh, official um, description from IKEA of what it is. In close collaboration with audio expert Sonus, we've created Symphonisk, great sounding, great looking pieces of furniture that blend into the home in new ways and make it easier to furnish with sound. Um, so essentially, it is a Sonus speaker that looks like a shelf. Really? And then there's another version that looks like a lamp. And this has this already in the market? Well, this is in the market. I actually have one. Um, I bought one about a month ago. Right, that's and intriguing now. It's interesting. It's it's a shelf. It's well, it's it's hardly a shelf. It's thick, so it's a rectangular shape. Yeah, it's probably I don't know in inches, maybe five inches in thickness with the speaker at the front, and it can be installed vertically on a shelf. Very clever. Or it can be a shelf itself. You buy an extra bracket that goes on the wall, and then you put your speaker onto that, and that becomes a shelf. So you literally put an ornament on top of it. So the idea is a space-saving... I've never seen this being done before. Yeah. It's intriguing. It is good. Um, the other thing that I really like about it is that it's already within the Sonus ecosystem. So everything yeah. that's Sonus already, if you have them, um, already is already built into this. That's, so Sonus that, everything. And that's what makes Sonus just a, you know, out out in a league of its own, I think. Yeah. Um, it really does. So this is very interesting. You know, I, I mean, and Ikea behind this. Uh, IKEA have, um, as you say, as we say, collaborated with Sonus um, in order to break into, you know, more of the, what would you say, the gadget side of their business. They already had, if you ever take a wander around IKEA, they already had a lighting section where you've got these um, lighter lights or bulbs, I guess, that you can put into devices, into lamps and that. Yeah. And you've got a little gadget that sits on the table that allows you to dim the lights, change the colors, turn them up and down, etc. So this is their next foray into uh, technology. And I think it works very well. Now, I've seen other reviews of it. Um, they say that the sound quality isn't as good. But then, you know, you're starting from a 10 out of 10 already with Sonus. I think it's the best sound in the market by a long shot. I agree. Um, so is this, is this a 10 out of 10 from a sound perspective? I think because of the shape, I think it, it's lost something. And therefore, it's probably in comparison to the cylindrical shaped sonuses that we're used yeah, to. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that that shape has something to do with how, how good the sound mm. is. Well, this is an actual, actually a rectangle. It looks like a box. 
And I'd say there has been some compromises. So it's an 8 out of 10 in my view. Mm, I know some people who are going to be very interested to hear this now, including my own father, if he's listening to this. He corrected me the last day when I said that he had only six six SANA speakers in his house. He rang me afterwards and said, no, I have more than that. So uh, for any Sanus um, lovers out there, this looks like something that could be worth uh, investing in this Christmas. It is, and the best part is that it's 99 quid. Could be so, a reason to go along to Ikea as well, if you're, if you're being dragged along. Well, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and the lamp is another one, which is interesting. It looks like a lamp. I'm not sure I'm convinced by it. It's not the best-looking lamp you've ever seen. Okay. Uh, but nevertheless, it's uh, really uh, interesting. The lamp doesn't speak to you now as well, does it? <laughs> well, interestingly, they do. They both speak to you if, you, if, you're, if, if this is where you're going with this. Yeah. They have Alexa on board, and they have Google Assistant yeah, on board. Yeah, that's what I meant. That's great. So yeah. you can speak at them, and they yeah. do what they're supposed to, like the other uh, new, new parts of the Sonus range. Mm, funny time we live in you be talking to the lamp it's interesting isn't it talking to the lamp yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) okay so very interesting thank you Um, let's move on to today's theme which um, you've heard it before in the previous uh, podcast and we talked about a concept called time kills a deal Um, there used to be a saying the early bird catches the worm it's the same concept however maybe a little bit updated Um, And if you recall in the first two podcasts, the SAI story that we did with Chris Byrne, we um, talked about the various, um, our story, of course, of the Software Architects International journey. But we talked about um, two or three um, bids that we had had uh, for the company by various people during that journey. And uh, we've been asked to go into a bit more detail, and that's what we're going to do today. And it harks back nicely, of course, to the time kills the deal. Yeah, it's very relevant because we've had a lot of listeners, um, a lot of people that, who run their own businesses who've actually commented on this uh, and, and how important this is in their whole world. Because obviously sales is the lifeblood of any organization. And certainly from your experience, which we're going to talk about right now, the time can certainly kill a deal if you let that lag. You've got you to get the deal done. You have to get the deal done and you have to do it in a timely fashion. Um, And uh, the old American saying that else someone will come and eat your lunch. Um, It really is, you know, it really is the the major uh, factor within any sale, be it these are trade sales we're talking about here, but it applies, of course, to any sale you're trying to do to any for any product to any particular customer. And Carl Widger touched on it and did an excellent, um, excellent job on the previous podcast as well. So just to get into the question that we were asked about, you asked it actually in the first podcast, um, did and when and did anyone come looking to buy the company? And the first time that happened to us, I think, was after about um, uh, about three years. There's that three again that keeps coming up in all of these conversations. Yep. Three, three and a half years. Mm-hmm. We were uh, contacted by our contact within the UK, which is the European headquarters of SSA, oh, yeah. Chicago-based software company. And he basically said, Are "You guys, would you guys be interested in getting closer to SSA as a company? And indeed, uh, would you be interested in selling the company? And then just to recap, we, we were at a point in the company where for the first time we were starting to make a few quid. We are starting to enjoy it. We were starting to get customers. And it was nice coming in in the morning as distinct from the drudgery of yeah, trying yeah. to get a company. You weren't out there actually actively looking to sell the business at that stage. It wasn't... No, we weren't. It just kind of came along. But it was, I have to say that we, we were very chuffed that, uh, that, that, that somebody you know, would want to buy the of course, company, even yeah. at, the, at the part at, at the, uh, the, the, the uh, part of the lifestyle. And, and harping back in the first episode, you'd move beyond the starvation stage at that the first We'd stage. We'd move beyond starvation. <laughs> and as I say, that's why we were starting to enjoy it 
quite a bit. Um, <laughs> but interestingly, um, uh, funny as it might sound, uh, we weren't interested. Now, they weren't offering an awful lot of Why money. Why weren't you interested? Uh, because of what I just said. Because you were enjoying it? Well, we had started a business mm. to enjoy starting a business. We had started a business because we felt there was a niche and that we could do you know, a lot with this. And we were starting to grow and that was starting to become fun. And um, now we didn't think that the price they were going to offer us was going to be fantastic because we were so young. Yeah. And it turned out to be the case. And uh, to put some figures on it, I think it was somewhere between maybe two and five million dollars, which is a lot of money regardless of, course, yeah. of when you're at. However, we, fo- we felt that there was a lot more potential in this business. So we dragged our heels. So interestingly, two things happened. One is... Of course, it verified again that we were on the right track. If a company that big wants to buy you, either to subsume you or actually kill you, mm-hmm. which often happens within big, course, yeah. big deals like yeah. this, then you must be doing something right. And that was our logic. So we dragged our heels. And I think we both kind of avoided each other on purpose because I don't think Chris wanted to sell it and I didn't either. Okay. So we kind of forgot on, on purpose to not talk about it. And what happened next was after about five or six weeks, the CEO of the company, a guy called Roger Covey, um, got wind that the one of his senior VPs had made this um, approach to us, and he was fired. Really? Now, we don't know whether he was fired because of the deal he was trying to do with mm. us. I doubt it. I mean, I'm sure there must have been other factors. But for us, um, the guy was gone, and so the, so was the deal. So even if you had wanted to do that deal earlier on, you know, in, in the process... Um, the time you took to mull over it would have killed is effectively killed it. Uh, yeah, and that's the point we're trying to make here that that, that lapse of time probably mm. killed the deal because you could make the argument had we done it quicker and had we gotten into a heads of agreement and down the road and the process and got the lawyers involved and all that stuff sooner, well, it might have gained legs itself whether this guy got fired or not wouldn't have mattered sure. because it would have been within the, the two systems mm. of the two companies. Um, so interestingly, we dragged our heels, and again, it kind of copper, uh, kind of underlines the, the concept here that you can also use time to kill a deal in this particular, mm, uh, in this this occasion, mm-hmm. in a negative way. Okay, just to push on, um, the second time um, that we um, had a bid for the company was around 1999, and those of you who are old enough to remember was the time of the millennium bug oh god don't mention the millennium bug yeah so the millennium bug do you remember what I, it was i do yeah the world was going to end wasn't it the world was going to end at the stroke of midnight yeah uh, yeah i think it might have been the world the, the, the biggest con within the tech the technology business since since technology a lot began. of technology companies made a lot of money in the back of it too they did and a lot of them struggled like us because we couldn't find customers to buy our products because there was an embargo within most companies on the purchase of new software because nobody really knew what was going to happen on the 1st of January it's not too year dis- 2000. Not too, not too dissimilar to what's going on with Brexit at the moment. Complete uncertainty. That's true. When you think about it, yeah. yeah. But I do remember, you know, 1999, I was in college and hearing about this and, you know, the way it was put out there was that all of the computer systems in college when we came back in January could be down. They didn't know what was actually going to happen. It was it was, it was was major stuff, wasn't it? Um. It was, um, but I think it was scaremongering, really. Um, I mean, it was, the, it was the simplest thing, without getting too jargony, jargonistic about it, in that um, if you have a date, you need to be able to compare dates 
in in code. So if you have two dates in front of you, you basically take the bigger date, you subtract the other date, and that gives you an answer. However, if if you are subtracting, we'll say 1900 from 1997, well, the answer is 97. Whereas if you are select, uh, subtracting now 1900 from 00, zero Zero one. Ah, I see. You get the wrong answer, and that's the Millennium Bug. Yeah, I didn't realise that. That's well so, explained. Um, and the reason for that was that uh, in computer terms, uh, the definition was six characters long, where it needed to be eight in order to do the thing correctly, and that was the Millennium Bug. So you had companies making fortunes going back into your software, your existing software, and making those what's called a field, those data pieces of data. Uh, from six bytes long or six characters long eight. to eight and that's all it was now the trouble again back to where we started the trouble was the companies were then told you can't buy software and that hurt us uh, very very imagine, badly yeah. because we were a software company so to get around it we talked about this before to get around it we tried to flip the company on its head at least for the period to get us over that year long 1999 millennium boat period and we became more of us of a services and consulting company and less of a product company however um, during that time um, we had a German partner based in Stuttgart in Germany a uh, lovely place to be lots of great cars around there and car factories and the like I've never so been I, actually I was yeah. in my element lovely I'd say you were and these guys had a um, European version of um, of a niche product that also plugged into the SSA offering. And they knew us and we knew them, so I went to visit those guys. We had a very nice long weekend, nice nice uh, pints and dinners and stuff. And the guy who ran it um, was very interested in doing something closer. So at the end of the, the weekend, I said to them, I said to him, well, we're in a position where we'd consider selling the company. So we talked and we talked. We got together a few emails that wasn't exactly heads, heads of agreement. Emails went back and forth. He then went back to Chicago, back to SSA, uh, to talk about the deal and, and uh, to recommend that they, the Germans and the, the SSA guys in Chicago, get together and buy the company. And guess what happened? Go on. The guy in Chicago said, no. And it turns out it was the same individual again. Really? Uh, called Roger Covey. Okay. Now, you then have to start thinking, you know, was there some issue with this individual and ourselves? I don't know. I met the guy. We talked about him before. A very, um, very strange individual. Um, extremely, if, if you have an archetypal uh, uh, computer nerd, let's call it, well, this guy was that. Okay. Um, and the leader of, the, of a big organization. A massive organization. So say, a huge uh, player. Yeah, 7,000 customers, 7,000 people, and offices all over the world, 60 mm. countries and what have you. So we don't know why, but he actually said, no, I don't want to do this deal. Now, it could have been personal. Maybe he didn't like the people. Don't know. But in this particular case, back to the topic of time killing a deal, we couldn't have done this one any quicker. Mm-hmm. This was something that was beyond our control. No matter how quickly we, we, we did it and how quickly we serviced it, it made no difference. We weren't going to get the deal anyway. So again, you know, it wasn't that we were tardy or slow. It was other circumstances that we didn't know about that affected the deal. Interesting. So, and then the third, as we know, just to, um, to recap, having learned the lessons of the first two um, 
two bids that we talked about before. And, and surviving the millennium bug. And surviving <laughs> the millennium bug. Um, the next time round, we thought, well, if we're going to try and sell this company, and we were at a really good juncture to do that, we were trying to ride the dot-com wave, if you recall. So this time we sat back and we thought long and hard about it and we planned it. And the approach we took this time was to uh, reimagine or rebrand ourselves as a dot-com company. Uh, we called it Rodeo. And secondly, we raised funds, if you recall, uh, to uh, bring the company uh, to a flotation on NASDAQ. Just to put a time frame, what year are we talking? This again is at the end of 1999, beginning of 2000. Oh, okay, okay. Um, which would have been, again, the height of the dot-com yeah, dot era. Big dot-com era, yeah. And um, we uh, we went about uh, appointing advisors to uh, to tell us and to indeed manage the whole process of floating on NASDAQ. We were becoming a, uh, trying to become an American public company. And the idea, of course, was to uh, get the same type of investors in that we had seen other uh, U.S. companies do. Had you anybody advising you who had been there before, who had you know taken the step, who'd, who'd exited a company? And we didn't. Uh, and you make a very good point here. Um, now, just just to recap on that, just before I get into that for a second. Um, so that came to success. We um, we met with the buyers in Atlanta, and we did the due diligence, and everything took about nine months. Sorry, uh, nine weeks. If you take a typical, um, any typical uh, buyout of a company or a purchase, it can take anywhere between a year and 18 months. So were you hyper-conscious now, because we're talking about time kills the deal, that you wanted this done quick? Absolutely. You, were, you, you must have been terrified that if this drags, we're going to lose this. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that meant working through time zones and working pretty much 18-hour days yeah. uh, for that, that nine weeks. Hmm. And it was said that uh, typically a, a standard year um, in any other business was about three months within the dot-com business. Okay. It was frantic. Yeah. And we were happy for it to be frantic. We worked very hard. We did what we had to do because this time nothing was going to get in the way mm-hmm. and time was not going to kill this, this is a, This is the third attempt. <laughs> yeah, but to, to, bring you, to, bring, to bring it back to the point you asked a minute ago, which is very interesting, and you and I have spoken about this before. Um, you know, with hindsight, um, we would have, um, I think, even probably done things quicker and maybe even better had we had some type of what's called a CEO advisory service, mm. um, which is a fancy way of saying had we ha- had we had access to someone who had done this before and who had, say, built a company, had the experience deficit that we had. And that just that, that just doesn't just apply to the, uh, the buyout of the company. Sure, yeah. That applied to, you know, even the operating of the company that we, uh, that we had for whatever it was, that eight years. In about year four, we recognized that we had a deficit in experience within the company. And we went looking for somebody actually within Ireland to see if we could um, get some, you know, older person's advice, if you want to call mm-hmm. it that, uh, someone who'd been through this before, uh, someone who could sit down and say, look, guys, you don't need to make these four decisions. Uh, it's going to cost you money, time and effort. Do it like this instead. So a mentor, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, someone who'd walk the walk. Someone who'd yeah, You're happy to pay them for the lessons they'd learned. Of course, yeah. um, because it's uh, whatever they charge, it has to be cheaper than making 
numerous years of mistakes and time and effort. Um, but we weren't. We didn't manage to find somebody like that. We thought we had, but it turned out right. Likewise, when we got to um, trying to figure out how to structure the deal to sell the company, um, we basically figured it out ourselves um, through researching what other companies had done. Uh, even a book, I think, that Chris had found that he read uh, on how to do this. Okay. Um, so that's where we were. Yeah. Um, very naive. Thankfully, I think um, we did a pretty good job at it. But wouldn't it have been nice to have, you know, Tony to say, hey, Tony, there is a company here trying to buy us. And Tony will walk in and say, OK, here are the six, yeah. seven, eight things that I've you I've been through this been once through or this. a few times. So yeah, yeah, I mean, that kind of experience is, is invaluable to you going through something like that. And I think the key takeaway from uh, from time kills a deal is the importance of obviously making sure that you're moving the deal forward as fast as you can. that You're not leaving time lag, but that you have the right advice around you. Um, you know, certainly if you're trying to exit a company. Definitely. Um, and, you know, whatever that advice costs, obviously you have to make your own deal with whoever it is. But, you know, in the scheme of things, I think this is often forgotten by people. It's always better to have 80% of something than 100% of nothing. Sure. So pay what you have to do, some reasonable amount, and get the right advice and get the right advisors indeed to help you to do the job correctly. Yeah, some valuable advice. Next episode, we interview Ireland's most famous international rugby referee, John Lacey. And what has that got to do with business and technology, I hear you say? Well, you will be surprised, but you'll have to wait until next month to find out. See you then. So that's it for this month's Tech Post. Don't forget, there'll be a new episode on the first Thursday of every month. And we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on Twitter. Remember, it's just tech, it's not rocket science.